fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, we're going to explore the topic of home gardens and foodways, specifically um, how Bosnian home gardens in the Balkans compare to those of Bosnian immigrants um, here in the U.S., in St. Louis, um, and thinking really about all the different social dynamics that go into gardens and what potential impacts this may have on um, people's health. So our guests today are um, Ashley Glenn and Andrew Flax. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Um, Ashley is a a PhD candidate that studies botany and anthropology through traditional food and medical systems. She holds a Bachelor of Science from Colorado State University and is currently working on her PhD in ethnobotany at the University of Kent in Canterbury, England. She's also a research specialist at the Missouri Botanical Garden based in St. Louis. As an ethnobotanist, she has published extensively on medicinal plants in northern Peru, working to understand the structure of Midwest prairies, and she's also supported home gardens around the world through her work at Missouri Botanical Sacred Seeds Program. Um, her current research is focused on the foodways of Bosnian refugees, about 70,000 of whom settled in St. Louis after the Bosnian War. Our other guest for today is Dr. Andrew Flax. He researches how we shape and are shaped by our environments, from the scale of the farm field to our own microbiomes. You may remember him from a previous episode where we talked about all kinds of good fermented um, foods and the impact on gut health. Um, Andrew earned his PhD from Washington University in St. Louis in April of 2016 and is currently an associate professor of anthropology at Purdue University. His work is in South India, Eastern Europe, and the American Midwest, and he investigates ecological knowledge and technological changes from Cleveland urban gardens all the way to Indian uh, GM cotton fields. So a great diversity and background all around these topics of food. I'm really happy to have you both on the show today. Great seeing you. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So I guess one way we could just dive into this subject is let's start with home gardens in general. What what interests you about, about these home gardens, and in particular home gardens of refugee populations? Um, Well, working at a botanical garden for 16 years, um, I love gardens, of course, and I love the different ways that they um, manifest culturally. The botanical garden has different gardens from different cultures. And um, when we were uh, talking about ethnobotanical programming in St. Louis, we realized that we didn't have a local ethnobotany program. And so we started talking about what that would be and it would be, you know, we're all interested in gardens and it would be food gardens. St. Louis is a huge food city. And if you want to study food in St. Louis, you want to study immigrant food because we have this really robust system of settling refugees. So we have people from all over the world being settled here and creating a new home. A big way they do that is with gardens and a big way they share that with people is with food. So when we were talking about what kind of program we should have, it should, you know, it should be food in St. Louis. St. Louis food is immigrant food. Um, and one of the most robust immigrant foods in St. Louis is Bosnian food because of these 70,000 people. Um, everyone knows a Bosnian, everyone loves Bosnian food. And so it was kind of a natural start. 
and it's delicious. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So right before we started recording, um, Andrew, you had a little snack box. You want to share that with uh, listeners or viewers on the on the screen? It's like a. Tell yeah. me about this snack box. What is this? This is uh, from Balkan Treat Box. It's a Bosnian restaurant in St. Louis that is uh, the darling of the food scene here, and this is called Sutlia. And we were just talking about uh, Persian food as well. This is a rice pudding. I wish I could show it without pouring oh, it on the wow. It looks amazing. <laughs> it's a rice pudding with pistachios and actual rose petals on it. Nice. This isn't a paid advertisement. We're just really big fans of these people. <laughs> They'll sponsor me. <laughs> amazing. And Andrew, what brings you to gardens? I know you've been really focused on fermentation as a, as a major passion of your research. What brings you to this topic as well? Like Ashley, probably. I, I grew up uh, with a big garden and we had these yummy things growing just around us. And my grandma had that. And this was something that seemed really normal to me. And then when I got to college, I got interested in anthropology and I think the anthropologists really like, if you're ecologically inclined, like these home gardens because it's a neat physical manifestation of culture. It's the foods you like to eat. It's the seeds that carry with them the stories of the people who gave them to you. You're growing it in a particular way where you get to improvise according to this very like hyper-local environment that is that garden field. And you also get to try out something new because you saw it on YouTube or you read about it in a book, or it just seemed logical to you. So it brings together all of these things that anthropologists love about traditional culture and also these real world conditions that we live in where we're not just static beings reproducing something that came before without any other thought. And as an added bonus, there are home gardens everywhere. Every commercial farmer that I talk to has got a secret little back patch where they're growing specialty things and that gets into the kitchen. And it's a great opportunity for somebody like me to break down different kinds of ecological knowledge that really gets me to talk about the things that animate me uh, from an academic perspective while eating some really delicious food. Amazing, amazing. Well, um, I know one, one kind of sub area that you're both interested in is how gardens create this kind of diverse economy of foods in, in local spaces. And I'm wondering if you could comment a little bit about that and how, how formalized is this economy? How much of it is around sharing of food or sharing of ideas? Um, yeah. What can you share there? Diverse economy is a phrase that we're borrowing as all good anthropologists do from, from better philosophers than we. Uh, this is a term that we're taking from the scholars J.K. Gibson Graham, which is uh, the pen name of these two authors who have a feminist geography intellectual program. And the idea of the diverse economy is that all this stuff that gets counted as real, like the money that we earn in the formal economy and the taxes that we pay and the things that states and our jobs kind of keep track of, even though that's the what we call the formal economy, that's actually a very small part of our lives because most of our lives is taken up in this other stuff, the diverse economy the gifts that we give to each other, the things that we do to reproduce our own social institutions by giving things or doing favors, providing work, this infinite ledger book of stuff that we don't actually keep track of all that much, but that really makes the world meaningful and go round. 
and compared to that, they've got this diagram of a of an iceberg that kind of gives us this impression of what an economy is and does, where that formal stuff might be on the top because it's hyper visible in the worlds that we live in. But real life is actually that 80% that's down below things that make the world go around. And a garden is a great physical space for that diverse economy to erupt into being because we're trading seeds and we're trading work and you can't stop by the garden without getting a couple of cucumbers shoved in your pocket as you're walking by. And these are all parts of what makes the real economy, the real exchanges between people possible in, a, in an environment like post-socialist, post-war Bosnia, post-Dayton Bosnia, post-1995, the, the Dayton Peace Accords, there is not much formal economic activity that really gives people something great to aspire to. This is an economically depressed area. Much opportunity is outside the country in places like the US or the Netherlands or Germany or Canada. And so the real economy is very much that informal, diverse economy that's centered by the garden, centered at the home. Yeah, and because gardens are, I mean, we all kind of saw it during the COVID quarantines where people felt really uncertain about food shortages and like the normal market system was kind of breaking down for us. And a lot of people who had never been into gardening are now fully into gardening because it's, you know, gets you outside, it's good for your health, it gets you talking to your neighbors, it makes you feel safer and it makes you safer from food shortages. You get a little more flexible, it's healthier. And this is something that we see everywhere around the world in times of uncertainty and um, kind of a sense of a safety net. And in Bosnia, that's extremely strong because of these, uh, this history, both the history of uncertainty in the market and the history of robust farming uh, in Bosnia. Does any of that feel familiar to your, your work in Kosovo? <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, across Kosovo and Albania, obviously, yeah home gardens are incredibly important to food security, um, to the social fabric of, of each community. Um, but you see that all over the place. You know, I, I had this amazing opportunity to go to Japan um, this month and I got to visit Okinawa and visit one of the, the, the villages where you have the longest lived individuals on earth. And what do they do? What's their secret? Um, they are always socializing. They're trading food. Their you know, friends are stopping by with a little red bean paste dessert, or it's like, check out this amazing fish I just caught. Let's eat it and have, you know, sashimi. <laughs> and it's like with real wasabi and it's delicious. So there's this constant kind of informal trade of foods. And I, you know, when I left there, it just reaffirmed what I think I've gathered from a lot of studies, which is, you know, really those social connections and that kind of through food as well is really important to our overall health or mental and physical health. And um, I vowed to do better at that. Like I did, and I was very proud this weekend. I went to a friend's house and he has this great, amazing, crazy, you know, garden and already has this huge onion harvest. I I'm like barely out with my mints at this point. So I brought some mint and I got some onions and he gave me some, um, you know, some sweet potato cuttings to plant. And it's like you said, you can't visit a friend's garden without walking away with something to plant. It's not just to eat, but like, Oh, have you tried planting this or that, or here are these cuttings or here are these seeds I had that were extra. Um, and so it is this kind of very informal economy of, um, friendship and food that just enriches, I think, a community in, in, in unique ways that money just doesn't accomplish, 
right? And I love this opportunity of a of something like a garden to flip that script, right? Because in many, many ways, from many, many perspectives, all the stuff you just talked about is so much more meaningful to us living long, happy, healthy lives than like paying our taxes <laughs> or or getting getting the sorts of wage work to have everything be reduced to that kind of uh, cost benefit economic calculation. We don't actually live our lives that way. And a garden is one of those opportunities to flip that script and say, well, here's the actual economy that we really live in. It's trading fish and pickles. Mm -hmm. And as researchers, I started with medicinal plant conservation. Andrew started with cotton farming, or that was our, our main early career focuses. And one thing about studying gardens is people want, it is a sharing action even though it's often solitary, it is sharing and it's part of a network. So people want to talk about this. Um, you're not trying to delve into people's secrets or put them in uncomfortable territory. People want to talk about their garden. And through that, they want to talk about the politics and the tension of their life decisions and their health and their fear about their health and uh, the neighbors they like, the neighbors they don't like, how they see and save that, like everything about life kind of sits on the stage of a home garden. And so for us as researchers, it's really fun to go into a space that's so sharing and so open. And that just for me, sensorily is fantastic. I love food <laughs> and I love hearing people talk about it. And I just wanna ask more and more questions to get to the kind of nuances and the breadth of what it means for people to have these gardens. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, I totally agree. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is like a lot easier to talk to people about these topics and then get a deeper perspective into overall how these systems affect their lives and their food and, and, and their health. Um, one thing I know that you've also studied is the role of gender in maintaining these systems. What can you share with us about that? Is there a gendered perspective to maintain home gardens or maintain these kind of informal trade networks across communities? And what have you found in, in the Bosnian um, immigrant population? Yeah, there are gender roles that are very um, strong and yet kind of flexible and adaptable at the same time because they have to be. Um, traditionally, it was usually women who stayed home and took care of the kids and took care of the garden and cooked and as such were seen as like the keepers of culture and tradition in the family. Whereas men were more like marketplace, multicultural, leaving the house kind of things. Um, with the kind of depressed post-war economy, a lot of men and a lot of people uh, of all genders are leaving the country or leaving the region because that's where the jobs are. And that just kind of uh, exaggerates those roles because the women stay home with the kids in a lot of cases and have to take care of the entire uh, house. So in a way it's like extremely exaggerated genders, but then we hear all these jokes about how this woman is alone for most of the year and has to do all these things that the man usually did. And then the men are all like doing in a construction company in Croatia and they all are living in a house together. So they all have to do the women's work. And so it's this like kind of of gender roles, but then what's more important is just getting the work done. Yeah. I love that gender is always performed and, and, and played, right? And so people can leap into these roles and maybe it's a role on this day that you feel really thrilled about because you get to 
have this uh, great femininity where you are the ideal woman and you're bringing these things together, or you're the ideal man because you built a shed um, and you've got that kind of agrarian, rugged, masculine I ideal that, that uh, farm kids around the world might look up to. And then the very next day you feel the tensions of that because this is a, a community that is dealing with political, ecological, economic upheaval. Uh, as, as many communities are, but it, it's especially exacerbated by these political conditions and the uh, environmental stresses of living in a montane environment. Uh, and so that very next day, you might feel constrained by those same roles. But that what what academia, what scholarship, you know, offers in that particular perspective is this vocabulary for talking about how we might fit in and out of these roles at, at different particular times. And there's a there's kind of a running joke with a lot of the Bosnian women that I work with where they'll call me like a good Bosnian woman at certain moments. I got it uh, the first time I was caught buying a 25-pound bag of flour at a Bosnian store. I said, you're a great Bosnian woman. First time I made a good pita, the first time I uh, did a good uh, planting of potatoes in the spring. And one thing was they said like, oh, like you're you're driving around the world and traveling around the world and being so like... Uh, resourceful, that's a good Bosnian woman. And I was oh, like, interesting. That yeah. With the Bosnian women I know. And they're like, well, you're adaptive, you're resourceful, you get things done. And so this concept of what a Bosnian woman is like, has some kind of traditions, but it's also just being someone who rolls with the punches and takes care of people around them and learns and does. Yeah. There's so many, I mean, maybe you should be called a good Balkan woman, because I can tell you, Albania, Kosovo, the same kind of situation. This past summer, I was I was in the field in the Haas region um, of the Shari Mountains. And, you know, there were villages where there were like, it was basically inhabited only by women and like young and old women and only very old men, because all the young men were gone. And so you had these full families, these full villages are basically run by by young women and, you know, with household help of the grandmothers watching the grandchildren um and they were doing everything i mean from the farming to like you know and, and the husband was you know away and would send money and but i've seen such big changes too in their agriculture so like you see i don't know if it's if you're seeing the same thing in bosnia or not but traditionally in these kind of isolated mountain villages they would make their roofing out of um kind of out of a, a batch roofing basically out of a certain grain they would grow and they'd also make bread from this grains from a kind of a very tall variety of rye and no one's growing this anymore and they've replaced their roofs with these metal corrugated roofs which are actually really bad for food storage because the buildings get too hot now and this is in some ways economic a sign of economic advancement because they have money to buy the metal roofs rather than going through the labor of producing these you know thatching but um, there are problems with it. And so I'm wondering, are you seeing similar changes like due to this kind of idea of exported wage labor outside the country and then remittances being sent back to Bosnia? Um, or is this more of an Albanian kind of Kosovar thing? I don't know. That's a really great observation. I don't think that we have something quite so specific to point to. Uh, the, one of the things that really stuck out to us, though, is that... Uh, push and pull migration and return. And the thing that, because of the work that we were doing, we were looking at these home gardens, the thing that really stuck out to us was the presence of trees and orchards, fruit trees specifically. Because if you're going to have a home, 
you must also have at least a dozen or so fruit trees. And part of that is a cultural signification that we're here and how can you have a home without a garden that wouldn't even really compute. And in the summer, even if you're just there for one month uh, in the summer because you probably live elsewhere, to have that home to return to, you need to have those, those trees present and they're perennial, so there's, there's less of that immediate work that you would need to take care of them. That would persist long after the people had left. So you could see these ghosts of homesteads and people would still kind of care for them and, and keep track of them. You could see where people were more invested in returning when they had these kinds of gardens. And what would happen is as people spent more and more time abroad, you would see, we can see this through satellite imagery. Um, you can see the garden sort of contract over time and over time. And if you were just looking at that with like LIDAR to try and get some, uh, like a, a reflection measurement as they do for forest cover to, to look at gardens and, and how much space you would see a clear contraction. But one of the things that Ashley did uh, last summer when we were out there is she mapped out exactly where the architecture uh, of all of, of these 50 home gardens that we went and talked to people at. And you can see them, we're not reducing any diversity. We're just kind of getting more and more compact and concentrated as people's mobility gets less uh, and they don't necessarily have to feed the same number of people. So you're, you're building a garden that is aging and then the rest of that land falls into political contestation because it's very hard to sell land. It's very hard to claim land. There are lots of competing claims. An orchard can claim land for you. A contracted garden can claim land for you so long as usually an elderly woman is there to, to kind of keep track of it in that way. That's the main thing that I would kind of point to yeah. over time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's interesting, this idea of two contracting, but yet maintaining that diversity. So this leads into another question I had. Can you give us some examples when we talk about plant diversity in these home gardens? Like, what are we talking about? Are we talking about different types of tomatoes or potatoes? Are we talking like just lots of different types of vegetables in general? Is it cucurbits and alliums and tomatoes? Or what's the diversity look like of a typical um, home garden? Um, it's a, actually a lot of vegetables uh, and fruits that Americans would recognize. Um, cabbage, potatoes, onions, garlic, um, all the trees are, it's almost, I think, mandatory to have an apple, a plum, a pear, a peach, and a cherry on your land <laughs> and a farmer to sit underneath, even though you're not making wine. Um, <laughs> are just staples. And one thing we see that I find really interesting is that even in a village where everyone knows each other and there is kind of a network, people are growing the same vegetables in each yard. So we we had we surveyed 50 gardens. A lot of the vegetables are counting in the in the upper 30s and 40s of how many we find. So almost everyone has the same top 15 or 20 vegetables. Different species of different Yeah, yeah. Species. Like everyone has climbing beans, everyone has bush beans, everyone has cabbage. And that is interesting to me. They're not um, kind of differentiating and specializing, but it also means that one person can take care of most of their own food. One old lady with a garden near their house can have just a few plants of each thing. It also means that if that gets destroyed, which we saw in one case, um, looked over at our neighbor of the house that we were staying at and there was a goat in the middle of the garden. 
eating all the oh, food. No. <laughs> yeah. Save that goat's life, but it was a sad day for the rest of us. Yeah, and this is an, <laughs> this is an older woman who um, doesn't have a husband, doesn't have kids nearby, and uh, relies on this garden for most of her food. She doesn't have a job. Oh, no. And so she was crushed. It was a catastrophe. And what just automatically happened was she came over to the house that we were staying at. Um, the our host family served her coffee and cake, uh, put together a bag of all the vegetables that she had lost that they had in their garden, and kind of just sat with her for a couple hours and held her hand while she cried and talked about the the fears that she has around food security and. Mm -hmm. This seemed like a very natural way that they solved problems. And it was really beautiful to see. And it, it made sense why the gardens were the way they were in this context. Yeah. And there's one interpretation of that moment that's kind of banal and obvious. Your neighbor had this disaster. And so you, you go in and help them out. But for us, this was this very important moment that really emphasized what a garden is and does, because this isn't a place where people have a huge safety net and or big piles of cash. There's oftentimes very little cash circulating around here. And so the real economy is producing emotion, is producing vegetables, is producing my kid will come and help restore your fence and put the goat back when needed. And it's not as though anyone's got this ledger book of what that would be. Mm -hmm. This is this garden is the anchor that really keeps social institutions moving yeah. when these other things aren't these other these other things that we might point to of cash or a government hotline or something that may might exist in, in some other European country. They're not there. So what keeps society moving is the kindness that a, a garden allows you to, to give. And to share. Yeah, and I think anyone who gardens in their own yard knows this. You might you might put a whole seed packet down and be like, "That's too much lettuce," but someone will need it. Yeah, it's good to have extra because you never know. And and giving things away feels good, and it also creates this mm -hmm. kind of social reproduction that we can then build on later without it being transactional, with it just being creating the culture and community that you need through home gardens. And as there's fear of kids coming back, that could be one of those changes like you were talking about where there's no one to give it to anymore. It's not as if people lack the knowledge or the resources. There is no one left to reproduce these institutions for. Um, so it's, it's a little subtler in some senses, perhaps than, than the roof situation. Uh, but so much, you know, depends on, on a cucumber that you can give to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can't help but think about how this compares to what happens in the U.S. with, with populations that are food insecure. Because when we think about gardening, I mean, admittedly, many of the books and guests we've had on the show, we talk about, you know, just recently had a beautiful episode on, on home gardens and like in like American suburbs and like, how can you grow your own vegetables? But it's almost like a luxury, right? Mm -hmm. um, because you have to have access to land and you have to have access to the knowledge and the supplies to kind of get something going. Um, and when we are dealing, when I say we, the collective government society, American societies dealing with, with, with um, food insecure populations, we, instead of enabling and teaching how to 
access land and grow food, we instead fill that void with kind of the industrial food complex, the, the highly processed foods. I mean, if you've ever worked in a food bank to volunteer, you'll see what we give to people that are food insecure is really, really unhealthy for them. It is just full of salt and sugar and all prepackaged. And there's, you know, rarely ever anything that's fresh. And so I don't know, like, I'm curious what your thoughts are about this, because you've studied these gardens in Bosnia, but you also study them here in the U.S. as Mm -hmm. part of like this refugee community. Do you think it's translatable to a broader population in the U.S.? Can we get away from this garden as luxury concept in the general populace? Or are there just too many barriers um, to access and knowledge around gardens to help shore up food security? And that's a hugely loaded question. So I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I have a habit of that. <laughs> Give me many questions. Um, and then it- yeah, I'm going to try and put all the thoughts swirling in my head into something cohesive. But um, yeah, in Bosnia, we're seeing young people in there, you know, who are trying to figure out what to do with their life, graduating high school and things like that. And their tension is kind of like, it feels safer to go get a job but I want a farm, but it also feels safer to have a farm. You know, there's different kinds of safety and different kinds of fears about that. And in St. Louis, um, and so, yeah, in Bosnia, there's like a, a sense for me that all of this traditional knowledge that is so intact could go away in a couple generations if this outmigration and this kind of fracturing of a village keeps happening. In America, I feel like that happened a long time ago, and now we're all revisiting it and trying to figure out what's going on. Some people have kept gardening, but yeah, it's become a hobby instead of a subsistence thing. Um, In St. Louis, uh, it's interesting because we have a lot of environmental uh, problems and a lot of like um, environmental racism and segregation around what lands can be planted and what are uh, poisoned forever, munitions, dumps, things like that. Um, so gardening is kind of a, a weird topic in our city. And um, yet I see bo- elderly Bosnians all around me or like adult, older Bosnians. I'm in a Bosnian neighborhood and I actually have a hobby farm and I'm surrounded by Bosnians that are farming. And so they're recreating what I see in Bosnia in their backyards. So their traditional knowledge, I think, is suited to um, this kind of landscape because they have that knowledge and they can bring it with them and the food types are the same. So you can have tomatoes and all that stuff. And I don't know how American culture can uh, embrace that. I'm trying to just show off the beautiful gardens and traditions that immigrant people are bringing to this city because it is creating an, an amazing lifeline and bringing a lot to our city and addressing some food deserts even. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that's- I think the tensions that that you talked about- Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about this. (laughs) Uh, The the tensions I think that you're talking about, Ashley, with the youth in in Bosnia, these are things that I've heard people talk about in India. These are things that people talk about in Czechia and in uh, Bosnia where I've talked to gardeners and young people. These are things that I've heard people talk about in the US as well. And it's not that surprising if we only, because so much of our lives are focused on the top part of that iceberg. To work is to get that cash and that's the sign of being a good man or a good woman or a good provider in that sense as a head Mm -hmm. of a household. That's the aspiration to which you would want to move forward with. And a hundred years, the 20th century, a hundred years of development was telling you that smart people get off the farm because the 
to farm is to work with machines and to use the latest technology in these ways that would make all the things we just talked about as positives like local knowledge and the love of your community. Those are all bad. They're inefficient. Let's get rid of that stuff and replace it with what really matters, producing commodity crops. Uh, and there's a tremendous irony in the food pantry that the, the fruits of that work to destroy a functioning sustainable system uh, are now being used to feed people who are victims of that systemic injustice, which is the dispossession of land. And, That's and it. Yes. <laughs> it's like, yeah. No, sorry. I just have to say yes. I agree. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I, so I don't live in St. Louis anymore. I live in uh, suburban. Sounds odd because it's not that big of a city, but I live in a, in a suburban setting in Lafayette, Indiana. And I am surrounded by lawns, which is probably a big topic that you talked about recently. And I, I've got some land and we could, we could grow in these spaces. And a lot of that energy in the United States has moved at least towards cutting um, grass monocultures, Kentucky bluegrass monocultures and replacing them with say 20 or so um, seeds that comprise to the state of Indiana uh, or the state of Missouri, a native prairie grass, which we bought as my scoff at because of course there's a lot more going on, but at least it's moving in that direction. It is difficult to reclaim that on your own if you don't have that network. And that is part of why when we talk about agrarian systems, it's always big communities and families and this larger network of exchanges that comprise that. And so one of the big steps to move away from valorizing grass and industrial agriculture that's killing us all uh, might be to embrace the other part of that diverse economy, which is to lean back into our communities to practice and try to grow these things, which is really difficult to do as an individual and quite a lot easier if you've got a network of people who can help you out uh, and and share with you. There's a, a, a Czech scholar, Peter Jelicka, uh, who talks about this as quiet sustainability, because it isn't mining lithium to make solar panels, and it isn't... Uh, skyscraper vertical farms that might solve these problems. It is people doing what they have always done, which is rely on their communities in place and trade around and mostly produce their own stuff, but also trade a lot with their neighbors when they need to. Yeah. And that isn't going to get the same kind of headline splashy presses. Nature and science and the New York Times aren't going to yeah. publish uh, articles about how well-meaning people keep doing things they've been doing. Uh, but that might save us. I mean, that's that's the kind of the thing that we that we can look to. And honestly, if you want, if you're anxious about the state of the world because of economic collapse and political upheaval and climate change, the Balkans offers a really instructive case in how people endure that and survive that and what the risks are, because there are risks to the things that, uh, to, to the way of life that the people that we're talking with are, are facing because there isn't much there. And if there's no kids left in the village, there's nothing really to reproduce. Yeah. If there is a home to return to and that home is anchored by a garden, then at least that is how you survive a triple apocalypse. Yeah. No, I mean, I think these, so many points there. I mean, there are many more villages that have been just completely abandoned because of uh -huh. this, right? Um, but at the same time, there's so many lessons we can learn. I think all too often we turn to the high tech way of things. Also in science, it's just, 
you know, there's something to be said about, you know, even looking at the field of botany, you know, there's this idea, oh, we should be able to just take a little piece of DNA and in the field automatically have the ID. But no, the reality is it still takes just regular, like understanding of plant systematics and taxonomy and looking at features. And it's a process that's worked for the past, you know, several hundred years, you know, sometimes I think the, the old ways aren't necessarily bad, but we tend to put this connection between high tech being the best and that gets communi- communicated to people. Um, and then we end up in these situations where, yeah, where kids can't even identify what a tomato plant is if you put it in front of them, you know, without a tomato growing on it, or even maybe if there's a tomato growing on it, you know, um, there's a big knowledge gap and, and like you said, a big dispossession of, of land access that many people face. Um, I'm hopeful. I hope that like communicating, talking about these ideas would get people thinking like, you know, stop, stop cultivating your monocrop of all of your grass in your front yard, <laughs> plant some food, share it with your neighbors, with your friends, help, help shore up community in your, in your neighborhood. I really um, like those as the metrics too, because it's a losing battle to say you could grow all your own food in your backyard yeah. or on a yeah. median live in an apartment or a garden box. But if it's less about what you might sell or the tonnage of what you would grow, mm-hmm. and it's more about being able to put yourself in a position to share some food with someone who you wouldn't otherwise be able to. And that is a really wonderful metric by which we could judge the success or the sustainability of something. Yeah. Yeah. And as an ethnobotanist at one of the largest botanical institutions in the world, um, my research with medicinal plants and with home gardens made me realize that the human survival is resting on grandmothers in their gardens and their kitchens and the relationships between grandmothers. And that is what has always kept us together. And it is what always will keep us together. And as a like researcher in a major institution, what I can do is support what they're doing. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to put it in an app. We don't have to, we can do all these things and we can, we can take the knowledge and the power that we have, but really ultimately what the easiest, smartest, most efficient way is just to listen to and support grandmothers that are doing this kind of work. I think that's a beautiful way to wrap up the show. So to all the listeners out there, talk to the grannies in your neighborhoods, uh-huh. you know, share food with them. They'll share with you. They may share some incredible wisdom with you as well about how to, how to grow food, how to make some of these great, great, great um, meals. And also, you know, perhaps some that even have health benefit, like herbs for teas and things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. I think we're about out of time. Um, before I go, though, I do want to ask if you can each share with us um, a favorite recipe that you've come across during your studies or travels. It could be Bosnian. It could be from another place that you've worked in the world. What's a What's a fun recipe you might each be able to share with us? Uh, I will share a cooking strategy that comes out of South India that I now apply to all food. And mm-hmm. I feel uh, very comfortable in, in that culinary uh, adaptation, which is to always pop my spices in hot oil before I use them, which is a very mm-hmm. common Indian thing to do. So you throw in mustard and cumin seeds when you would be making a, a curry, and then the oil becomes infused with all that. And so I've now been doing that with uh, European cooking, and I would say that it enhances it mightily. Oh, so nice. uh, 
pop your get whole seeds and pop them like popcorn in your cooking oil before you throw the other stuff in um that's wonderful mine does not have any advice because my favorite meal that i've learned about uh takes about three decades to perfect <laughs> so I'm, impossible I think I'm, a, I'm a good amateur and it's pizza. in some places it's called borek or spanakopita this kind of like stretched filo dough filled with uh any kind of filling and to see it being made is one of the most beautiful things in the world it's almost like a ballet where these women have it's all in subtle knowledge of fingertips and feeling the moisture of the dough and taking a ball of dough this big and stretching it out so that it hangs off the side of a dining room table and you can read the newspaper through it wow just just manipulating the the gluten and the wheat through like 20 different techniques that they're just improvising like jazz and it, it does look like a ballet because you're moving all around. There's these subtle movements. You're moving around the table. You have this big, long rolling pin that you're using in a million different ways. And the end result is one of the most amazing things. It's chewy. It's crispy. It's soft. It's hard. It's salty. It's sweet. It's so many. The first time I saw it being made in Bosnia, I snuck off to the bathroom because I was about to cry because it was so, I felt so honored that I was being taught this and that I could see it in person for the first time. And I tried to cover it up. I didn't want to be weird, you know. <laughs> and the friend of mine who has taught me, this woman in Bosnia, just like grabs my hand and just nods like, yeah, we've all been there. It's gorgeous. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> One of the most beautiful moments in my research. Wow. Burek and pita. I've I've tasted it many times, the Balkans, especially with like nettle leaves and spinach and all kinds of yummies, but I've never I've never seen it made um in real in real time. So I'll have to see that. And uh <laughs> we might be able to, to share a video oh, yeah. of it being made. We have videotaped it like oh wow like the pita is an actual celebrity. Ah, amazing. Yeah, send me that link and I'll I'll post it in the show notes. Amazing. Oh, definitely. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the show. It's been great chatting with you. Me too. Thank me you. Me too. Yeah, looking forward to the conference. Yeah, me too. Coming up next week, I guess by the time this show airs, it'll be just past the conference, but uh, it's going to be a great meeting. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to seeing Atlanta's amazing Vanguard Home Garden Urban Garden Network. Yes. <laughs> we look up to incredibly. Lots of amazing gardens here, for sure. <laughs> All right. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded for you today on Restream. Um, I want to let you know you can find out more about the show at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also head over to mysterycontrol.com. That's where we have all of our swag. And listen up, listeners. It's really important you support the show. We need to get some extra support to keep the show going. So help us keep uh, keep producing these great episodes. You can do it by grabbing a t-shirt or a mug um, or a bag or all kinds of fun stuff that's available there. Again, mysterycontrol.com and you can just pull up the, the sublist for foodie pharmacology. I want to thank our producers, Rob Cohen and Christine Roth. Thanks so much for being on a great show each and every week. And thanks to you, our listeners, for hanging in there with us. It's great to uh, share this fun knowledge with you. So stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time. <laughs>